With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're totally booked. Rock and roll. Well, I think I'll leave you to your reading. Little hands says it's time to rock and roll. Rock and roll We are totally booked. Welcome to Booked on Rock, the podcast for those about to read and rock. Online at bookedonrock.com, exclusive videos, blogs, links to all of the social media sites, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Find every back episode of Booked on Rock there, along with links to your favorite listening platforms. Hank Rosenfeld is this episode's guest. His brand new book is titled The Jive 95, an oral history of America's greatest underground rock radio station, KSAN San Francisco. It's an oral history of KSAN in San Francisco, America's first hippie underground FM station. Rock gods, political stars, and literary celebrities, including Jerry Garcia, Ken Kesey, Sly Stone, and John Lennon, were all interviewed by founder Tom Donahue and his cohorts, whose listeners tuned in and turned on to bands like Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Country Joe and the Fish, Hot Tuna, The Beatles, and Santana. Hank was there during those final years, writing, producing, and announcing. He's here to talk about the station known as Jive 95, and how it went from a liberating voice to a corporate cliche. Along the way, you're going to hear audio from KSAN, including clips of interviews with Jerry Garcia and John Lennon, protest announcements, and station IDs like this one. This is... KSAN in San Francisco. Sleazy Radio. He'll never mess up your mind or bring you down. Hey, Hank, welcome to the podcast. It's great to meet Hi, you. Uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but there's a new book out about the Jive 95. I heard. So, where are you joining us from? Where are you okay. right now? I'm in Santa Monica, California, but I'm about to go up to San Francisco, take the, the old 101 up there because the book comes out on August 15th, and then we're having a party on the 19th. It's at the Beat Museum in the North Beach. So let's talk about your background, where you're from, and, and how radio became such a huge part of your life growing up. I grew up in Detroit, as you can uh, see. I'm a booster. I'm a builder. Wearing the Detroit Red Wings jersey. Man. Uh, <laughs> I'm a wing nut. And uh, as a kid, I guess as a senior in high school, I went and got a, a project, an internship at WJR, the great voice of the Great Lakes, 760 Clear Channel. It was a great AM station I listened to as a kid. They had the Tiger games and 
you know, all of my uh, heroes were there, J.P. McCarthy and uh, the Lions and Tigers and Red Wings and Pistons broadcast. Anyway, so 18, I had an internship there, and then I went to college and uh, was on at Wesleyan, Connecticut, WESU, 88.1. Yeah, this is in Connecticut. So you, that's the reason that you came to Connecticut is to go to college at Wesleyan? Yeah, my whole family went to the University of Michigan, but I wanted to try something different and, you know, get out to the East Coast, which was great because Middletown, Connecticut, it's halfway between Boston and New York. Yeah. It's just Hartford and New Haven. And I could pick up great radio there, too. I remember, uh, what was the one from uh, New Haven? With the Stone WPLR. Man. Stone Man on PLR. Stone Man, 99 Rock, WPLR, Stone Man. Yep. I worked there for a little while, and he had already been gone by then. He was a legend there. Okay, so you're in Middletown, and then at some point you joined WCCC? No, no, I was on ESU. My my buddy Steve Capen was on Triple C for a while. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, back in the 70s, but I met I didn't meet him till San Francisco. Well, after graduation, I wanted to get as far away from the East Coast as possible, so I went to San Francisco and drove a cab, and I, I moved to San Francisco in 77 looking for the Beats. You know, I read Kerouac and read Ginsburg, read all that stuff in college, and uh, I was looking for the Beats. Unfortunately, I was about 20 years too late. You know, they were there in the late 50s, uh, early 60s. So I took a job driving cab, and then one night, Gregory Corso, one of the great beat poets, fell into my cab about 1978. He wrote a lot of great poems. He, he said, uh, be a star screwer. You know, he was an ecstatic beat poet, you know, drinking the <laughs> cocaine with Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder and all those guys. So I was like, okay, I found him. I found the beats. So I can quit driving cab. And the whole time I was driving cab, I was listening to KSAN, this little station, uh, 94.9. They called themselves the Jive 95. And I was driving around in the cab. This is the greatest, listening, this is the greatest station I've ever heard. I, I got to work there. And so I kept bugging him and bugging him. You know, back then you just pull the cab over, get on this the phone there and call in and I kept bugging the news guys there, Dave McQueen and Larry Bensky, Scoop Nisker, who just passed away, one of the greatest newscasters. He's famous for saying on KSN. And remember, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. He's probably one of the most famous guys there. And they finally said, come in. And I got $5 an hour as a news intern, you know, pulling rough, ripping and reading and uh, eventually writing more of the news and then eventually producing the morning show there with Stephen Capen during the last days of KSAN. You know, Hank, you said $5 an hour and that's in what, the late 70s? Yeah. Okay, I was making $5 an hour in 1996 at WCCC doing weekends. <laughs> Five, and I washed my first paycheck. So I had to ask them to recut me a check. I washed it in the washing machine, had it in the pocket of my jeans. <laughs> so my, I think maybe my mother still has that up on the above the machine. Check your pockets before, because <laughs> I, I told her and, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I was freaking out because I was so nervous. I had to ask them to recut a check. Five bucks. After? <laughs> so you are now making so you get the job at KSAN. Right? Is that what they is what they call it? KSAN? KSAN, KSAN, San Francisco, the Jive 95, because they were at 94.9. It was kind of an yep. in-house joke. Uh, and it took off. This is a station that started in 1967, as you know from reading the book, yeah. as the first underground 
hippie run rock and roll station. So when I got there, it was kind of in the end because by 1980, I'd only been there a couple years. Reagan came in and they, the corporation that ran the station, Metro Media, we called the Metro Meaningless on the air. They came in and just clamped down, shout out, shout out to the Clash. And all the cool kids got fired and they went country western. And that's what we're going to lead up to as we go through the questions here that I have for you. But let's start with the man known as Big Daddy, Tom Donahue. So chapter four of the book gets into Tom's background and his start in radio. And people that are fans of radio really should know who this guy is because he's so important. Can you give us a brief backstory on Tom, where he was from and his background in radio? He's in the, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, one of the few DJs. Both his parents were journalists. His uh, real name is Coleman, C-O-M-A-N, and his dad was... Uh, his parents were in D.C., and he started working at little stations in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. And finally, he got on a, a big rocker in uh, Philadelphia, and he became the top DJ in Philly, top 40, the 60s. And then he got a run out of town, and he ran to San Francisco, where uh, one of his buddies was, and he started working there, top 40 DJ. Uh, big Daddy, 400 pounds of solid sounds uh, at uh, KFI. Is that the right name? KYA. I'm sorry. KYA, KFI is Los Angeles. KYA was the number one top 40, and he he was a force. He was an unbelievable force. Uh, he started his own uh, uh, company, that uh, a label. He had a label called Autumn Records and produced records, and his, his engineer was Sly Stone. He was like an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid. Wow. He hired Sly, and they put out records. And he was big in every way, too. He was a big guy physically, but a big voice. Big boy. Oh, yeah. Big old radio voice. It is. It's just that classic FM rock radio voice that just you envy, you wish you could, you could have. I mean, he just, he had it. But he also, what he had is he had the foresight. He saw something happening while he's in San Francisco. And there, there's a place called the Red Dog Saloon, which you cover in your book. This is a very important place. What and where was the Red Dog Saloon? And can you explain why this location plays an important role in the San Francisco scene? Red Dog Saloon was in Virginia City, Nevada, up in the uh, Sierra Nevadas, in California, crossing into Nevada there in the mountains. And it started as a silver mining town. In fact, Mark Twain worked on a newspaper there, the Territorial uh, Enterprise, I believe it was. So that was in like 1860s. So cut to 1960s 1965 some hippies are hiding out out there uh, beats actually and on lsd one night they're playing risk and they said let's fix up that old saloon downtown uh the red dog and they turned it into a place for all their friends to come and hear music and trip and one of the first bands they got to play there were the charlatans i think they're in this book you remember this book uh, golden it's like golden nuggets all these great old... Uh, no. Oh, that's cool. Count Five, Psychotic Reaction. This is a great book I recommended of all the San Francisco uh, early bands. And one of them was the... Uh, I I could find them. What's the title of that book? It's called Love is a Song We Sing, San Francisco Nuggets, 1965 to 1970. Okay. Really, though. It's covering bands like Quicksilver Messenger Service. All these bands used to go to the Red Dog Saloon and play. Quicksilver Messenger Service, 
the Big Brother and the Holding Company, the Charlatans. And it comes with four discs in it of uh, songs by like uh, We Five, Country Joe, The Warlocks, The Bo Brummels. The Warlocks, Tommy. by the way, which future would become Grateful Dead. Was that yeah. what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was uh, in San Francisco where they just did their last concert, The Dead and Company. Oh, yeah. With their tour in San Francisco. I was up there a couple weekends ago and I saw Country Joe and the Fish without Country Joe, just the fish. Barry Melton, five bucks in North Beach. Wow. And um, he had a guitar player from Big Brother and a guy from Quicksilver that was there. It's amazing that the San Francisco sound goes on and on and it's still this place, you know, to hear. Jefferson Airplane. Yeah. Yeah, those great bands. What's the connection there with Tom Donahue and that particular saloon? Because the, there is a connection there. It, it leads to what would become you know, Tom Donahue, KMPX, all that stuff. Yes, uh, the charlatans and the people that produced the, their bands up there came down to San Francisco in 66 when the Pranksters and Ken Kesey and the Haight-Ashbury was just starting. In fact, Scoop Niskers and, and others say that the, the real summer of love was 66 because that's when everything coalesced in there. The hippies starting to see each other. Uh, LSD was was hitting everywhere. The hate neighborhoods would be it was kind of low middle class black neighborhood and students from SF State were moving in there and hipsters were like were getting uh, communes and Victorians around there. Family dog was getting there. So all these people brought their uh, ideas and dreams and a couple of from Virginia City. They basically got run out of town there and they came down to San Francisco and a couple of them became part of the KMPX, which was Tom Donahue's invention in 19. 67 which was a kind of uh which became ksan and then a year later all these other fm underground stations began in the east coast boston new york detroit all those but they were uh, ksan was the one that started and spread its seeds nationwide and became what became alternative rock format it, and it's interesting just tracing all of this back because i knew of tom donahue i knew of of ksan but I didn't know that it really starts with KMPX in San Francisco. That's Charlie Mingus in Wednesday night prayer meeting. This is Tom Donahue at KMPX 107 on your FM dial. We're playing records until midnight. By the way, was Tom Donahue, did he ever go to that Red Dog Saloon? I mean, he, he wasn't there himself, was he? That's a good. I don't think he was. No, I don't no. know the record. But. But, but what happens is he meets up with these, this group from the Red Dog Saloon. They all convene and they get together and then all of a sudden he's got his staff of disc jockeys a lot of them were from the red dog saloon correct yeah mylon melvin and chan laughlin and all these cats some of them were drug dealers some of them were just hippies uh you know you knew everybody the hippies were there wasn't that big a population in 64 65 you had very pranksters ken kesey and all that acid acid tests around town and the community kind of got together. And I remember Tom used to come on and say, hello, I'm Tom Donahue, and I'm here to play phonograph records. And this is Tom Donahue, and I'm here to play phonograph records. Old school, man. Love it. Yeah, yeah. So, it, But it's interesting. It's very organic how this all happens. Chapter 7 leads off with a quote from Tom Donahue, and it comes from his 1967 piece, which is published in the second issue of Rolling Stone. And he writes... Top 40 radio is dead, and its rotting corpse is stinking up the airwaves. So his answer 
to that was San Francisco's KMPX. It's considered to be America's first alternative free-form radio station. And there's a picture of it in the book. How does it go from a small FM station known for foreign language programming to becoming the go-to station for 60s counterculture? Uh, it happened when he was working at Top 40. Donahue, an amazing guy, he put on the last Beatles concert in America, yeah. San Francisco's Candlestick Park in 66. And he used to sit around with his friends and play record albums. He lived up in Telegraph Hill. Friends would come over and they'd play records for each other. Kind of what we all did, you know? Here's an album, you gotta hear this, you gotta hear this. And one night, somebody brought up the doors and it was the, you know, father, I wanna kill you, mother, I wanna at you, and- The end. Said, what? Yeah, and this, this neighbor there's named Vaco, Abe Keshian from Detroit, and they said, we gotta get this on the, how come we're not hearing this on the radio? So Tom said, you know, let's have a, let's start a radio station of albums that we enjoy listening, playing for each other. And he found this one radio station, KMPX, that was kind of really hurting. And they just played foreign language uh, hour by hour, you know, there'd be the Chinese hour and the Ukrainian hour, all these different foreign and Christian shows and things like that. And he bargained with the guy to give him four hour slot, six to 10. And that's when he put on the rock and roll. And eventually it became 24 seven. And you had all these people pouring into San Francisco at that time, that whole generation, baby boomers now, and they tuned in. It became the community station on a commercial station. It was their community station. They came down, they decorated the studios. They would hang around in the lobby. It, you know, it's an outpost that just not around today. It's kind of like no. a, the website where kids go like the Craigslist. That's what it was. People got all their information from this one hub on their radio, where to get a ride, where to go to rallies, where to get an apartment, uh, how to find your lost dog. Yeah. Oh, you know, I always said I, I was born too late because when I jumped onto the, the FM radio train, it was, well, I started listening in the late eighties and I thought it was so cool. And then in the mid nineties, I started working the business and I would hear things and read things about what it was like in the very beginning. And I just thought, man, I wish I was around during that time because it was an art form. And every DJ sounded drastically different. There was no cue card. There was nothing that they had to, there was no playlist. There was no, no grand design, no commercial uh, prospects. It was just, it was an art form because also the, it's interesting. We should know too, the government, there was something that happened to where FM radio, it's crazy to think about it, but it was considered just something like a throwaway. It wasn't anything that was important, but what, what happens with the government? They said to these, these owners of these, stations you have to put something different on your fm there was a decree that you had to have fm okay and so that started creating FM. and stereo came in the same time so music sounded better than it did on am so they played these lps the case and they played the whole side of an lp because the listeners were, you know, were taping it so they have it you could hear the whole side and also it, it sounded better Mostly it was classical. You right. had these educational stations down at the left end of the dial. And so there wasn't rock. This just completely changed it. There actually was a DJ already at KMPX who was on from midnight to six. And they let him do whatever he wanted. And he was actually Larry Miller came from Detroit to San Francisco. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys had bands. He had a band in Detroit called the Southbound Freeway. 
anyway, he came there and played whatever the hell he wanted. And they called him the first freak because he stayed there when Donahue came in and was bringing all his friends in from the neighborhood. His friends were sitting around playing records with each other. Those were his first hires, people like Howard Hessman. You know, became, I want to get to that. Yes. And he became the Jesus. And Larry Miller was, I think, the farthest out, the first freak. He played whatever he wanted, said whatever he wanted. I mean, you could swear on that station. When they had the Sex Pistols on in the late 70s, uh, interviewed them before the last Sex Pistols concert, also broadcast on the air there. I can imagine. Those guys were swearing right and left on the airways. Yeah. I don't know how they got away with it, but I'm like you. I wanted to say that, Eric. I'm like you. I got there in the late 70s. I had missed it. Right? Yeah. When I got there, I was like, what's this all about? I hear this great thing. We're the coolest. We still felt like we were the Mythology coolest. had already had already developed, and it was strong at that point. Yeah, you, you must have been – just to be in that building, it must have been so cool because you were talking with the people that were there during that time. It was the, late, the last heyday, and – you know, the, the corporation and Reagan came in. But I always want to know about the early parts. Sure. sure so that's yeah. how I got into this book, was interviewing some of those original freaks and heads. And there were straights, too, and I interviewing them. And uh, I'll tell you how the book got developed. Tell me about that, too, because I'm really interested, because I'm assuming it comes out of just your natural fascination with the station and its history. But, yeah, when did this idea come about? Well, they had a reunion in 2014. KSAN, uh, Jive 95 reunion, uh, 2014. It was at this club called Yoshi's in San Francisco. For those yeah, so just this- listening on audio, you're showing me a, a big poster, promo poster, and it's definitely got that late 60s uh, psychedelia look to it. Yeah. So at that gathering, 2014, a couple of old KSAN guys started filming, and all that footage is eventually going to become a documentary but there was also one guy in the audience named jeff house and he started taking notes and from 2014 on he interviewed a lot of ksan characters and wrote a narrative about a 500 page narrative jeff house he was a a, a scholar an academic writer from san jose and he died and his sister sent me all the tapes and then i took on the project and wanted it to make an oral history so continued interviewing uh some of those great cats and that's how it turns into the book. That's how it became this book. Tell me uh, about Howard Hessman, because Howard Hessman was among the DJs at KMPX. Don Sturdy was his on-air name. But he goes on to become famous for playing Dr. Johnny Fever on WKRP in Cincinnati, one of my top five favorite television shows of all time. In fact, when COVID hit and I was home, I went through that box set and watched each and every episode in succession because I wanted to do it for the longest time. I had the box set. I just didn't have time. And that, and it was so great to go back and watch each episode from start to finish. And he was hands down my favorite character on that show. He had a DJ background. So that's why he, it was just, you get that feeling that he was legit. You felt like he was a real disc jockey. Now, his character was inspired by Tom Donahue, plus he threw in a few other DJs that he kind of put all together for that character, Bob Dale and Bob McClay. Those are the other two. Now, he, he sadly just recently passed away, but did you get to speak to him for the book, or was this from the tapes that you received? They were from the tapes I received okay. and, 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 and for this documentary called uh, Something in the Air, okay. which is a new doc about KSAN, which they're still shopping around to film festivals. But they've been working on that since 2014. And uh, well, he was in the committee, the great improv satirical group in San Francisco, 
like Second City or uh, L.A.'s Groundlings. This was this was the place in the mid '60s to hear your political satire at night, uh, and what was going on in the '60s. And he was a friend. He was a neighbor in Telegraph Hill of Tom Donahue and Rachel Donahue. And they said, we Come should along. be yeah, Rachel. I, we should mention her too. That was Tom's wife. Yeah, she was originally okay. just a little kid. Rachel Hamilton came up to San Francisco, met Tom. I think she was stripping at that time, or she was dancing. <laughs> yeah. She was doing. She was in a North Beach club, and they met. And, but Howard always considered himself a beatnik. He was a beat more than a hippie because he came out of that '50s thing. But he just had the greatest time. He played whatever he wanted, and it was a real wild assortment. <laughs> in fact, I have some of the records actually. I don't know if your audio people can hear this see this but he would play stuff like country joe the great album this had that song uh section 43 on that you know that song yeah One of the first great psychedelic songs and, but he played a lot of satchmo too he loved lewis he loved jazz then of course you had the the airplane stuff which was very popular in case sam and, showing uh, showing these by the way all on vinyl i love it yeah yeah or chrome and then uh, do you get do you have john coltrane in there because he got into trouble he said tom never Tom would never tell anybody to do anything, but there was one incident where he was playing a little too much John Coltrane. Yeah, yeah. He called him up and said, you're playing too much Coltrane. And he said, <laughs> he's like, no, are you going to be playing them all night? You could do that. But you could also play stuff like Eric. Uh, this is uh, Senator Everett Dirksen, who did a version of Wild Thing, by, which was originally by the Trogs. Yeah. And they played anything they wanted, let's face it. Um do is, is there any audio out there of we call him air checks howard hessman on the air because i i've been dying to just hear what he sounded like it's got to be out there somewhere his family members must have something i talked to uh his wife kathy uh, uh learner and uh she said it was really it was just the best time they would go with uh, tom and rachel to concerts and snort uh, amyl nitrate and trip out <laughs> And there was an earthquake, and she and Joan Baez had to help people over their chairs, and just you know, <laughs> wild stories in the book. But that's anyway, right. Read them in the uh, book. Yeah, it, it, it did take this. I wanted to ask you: Did KRP inspire you to go into DJ? Oh, it was definitely, it was definitely what led to me wanting to become a rock DJ. My dad was a disc jockey, so I got into the love of radio through him, just watching him work as a kid. But then listening to rock radio and seeing WKRP, absolutely, it was part of the mix. And when I got into radio, my dad and I used to talk about how that show was so close to the real thing. And lo and behold, we find out that the producers and the writers were people that did work in the radio business in Atlanta. So there was, so when I started working in radio, there was all these crazy characters that you'd come across. And it was like, that's exactly what KRP was. You just get those, those dudes that would be you know, always third shift. There's always that one guy, all these characters. I think Johnny Fever had some episodes that he took directly from stuff that had happened at KRP. Sure. Like you said, he, he modeled them after some great KSN DJs that he knew. Now, here's I, a mind blow, though. Carl Gottlieb, and I'm a huge Jaws fan. So when I see Carl Gottlieb, I'm like, is this the same Carl Gottlieb that was a screenwriter for Jaws? And yes, it is. Carl Gottlieb from Jaws, he was a DJ at KMPX. There's a staff photo, by the way, in your book. People have to get the book to see it. From 1967, KMPX, you see Howard Hessman, you see Carl Gottlieb in there. And Carl talked about his approach on air. 
His quotes are in the book. He opened with the Beatles' good morning at noon, since that's when most of the station's listeners were waking up. (laughs) And he talked about all the different artists that he played, and many that nobody knew about. Bob McClay was the first DJ to play Jimi Hendrix. Mm. How did that happen? Well, he 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 had an English, uh, an album from England that a friend of his sent over. And uh, Hendrix was coming through in 67, I think, when he did the... um, Monterey Pop Festival in 67. Then he played the Panhandle in San Francisco. And uh, the, the record just blew up, you know, after Bob McClay was, was playing it. Gottlieb was an old hippie, another, uh, not an old hippie, a young hippie in San Francisco. At the same time, he also worked with Hessman in the committee, the satirical troupe. I think it was Gottlieb who told Hessman about this radio station. The Book Done Rock podcast will be back after this. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, that's by Blind Willie Johnson. Lord, I just can't keep from crying. Our guest tonight are Jerry Garcia and Phil Ash from The Grateful Dead. Ray Charles is next on your schedule. Is this uh, early or late? Late. Very recently. The last, last single. I last single. Yeah, that is the latest. Do you think the stuff he's cut with uh, ABC has been as good as some of the things he cut with Atka? I think he was in uh, was in a much heavier blues bag, I think, earlier. Yeah, I, I always liked the seven-piece stuff, and with the Raylettes and all like mm-hmm. that. It was real nice sound. But his yeah. big band is one of the tightest going. Yeah, there's some good big bands. Uh, I like the sound that Bobby Bland group gets, too. Yeah. There's just a, there's just a lot more uh, funky, I think, than Ray Charles. Yeah. James Brown, I think, actually has the best big band, the tightest. They're real snappy. Super disciplined. Oh, boy. Yeah. Two use two drummers, too. Smoke on stage during rehearsal, 10 bucks. Late for rehearsal, 25 bucks. James keeps them in mind. Oh, I'll bet he does. Huh? Have you thought about that, Jerry? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> keeping the boys in line? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's try Ray Charles. I don't need no doctor. Hank Rosenfeld, the author of The Jive 95, an oral history of America's greatest underground rock radio station ksan san francisco and it's due out august 15th now one thing i didn't know until reading your book that tom wasn't the first to create freeform radio who was the one that made it a success but a new york dj had been doing it prior to that and this is a name i know very well pete fornatal fornatal at w uh, n-e-w eventually but i think he did it earlier at another station he had a show but nobody done 24 7 until donnie who came along and turn KMPX into that. And he stuck around for a while in New York radio. I remember they did some stories. I worked worked in radio in New York at WXRK, K-Rock. Yeah. Uh, Howard Howard Stern was in the morning, and I produced Steve Capen in the afternoon. Wow. Called it the afternoon episode. He was a character named Coyote and could go off at any moment. But uh, (laughs) when we went in there, we said, okay, Howard will take everything below the waist, and we'll try to take everything from the neck up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, what about, there's another station in San Fran called KPFA. That was another one that was freeform? Was that prior to? It's still there. It's a Pacifica station. It's in Berkeley. I'm going to do an interview up there. Chris Welch uh, is still there. She's 80. She was at KSAN. 
Bonnie Simmons still does a show on KPFA on Thursday night, Freeform. Great stuff. She was a program director at KSAN, lives up there. A lot of these old Jive 95ers still live up there in the Bay Area. And I hope when I do some reading events, they'll drop in and talk to, about their lives. Oh, yeah. They can give you some stories. So KSAN happens because of a commercial takeover of KMPX, correct? It's the, uh, the owner of the station, Leon Crosby, got greedy. He saw they were number one. He said, okay, we're going to straighten things out here now. I'm going to bring in my people with their suits, and you're going to cut your hair. All this stuff, you, you know, you hear about that happened in the 60s, and they went on strike. It was the first hippie strike, and they wanted a little more money, all the DJs, and they unified, and Tom Donahue quit, and so they all walked out. In the meantime, Donahue had started another station for Leon Crosby in L.A. It was a sister station to KMPX called KPPC. And became popular in L.A. Firesign Theater were on, a bunch of really cool people, uh, Harry Shearer and his comedy troupe. They went on strike at the same time. So they, um, Leon Crosby went out and hired a bunch of scab DJs. It's a, it's a great story. The first hippie strike. and There's a picture Washington in the book Post. of that, too, from 68. Yeah, Washington, Post. Washington posted a couple of great articles about it. Mark Fisher, I think, is the journalist at the Post who wrote it up. And... Uh, they walked down the street. They negotiated. Tom went around the country looking for a new station. Chicago had ABC networks there. And he was like, no. And then he came back. And Bob McClay found this KSAN, which was K, uh, what was it? KSFR at that time. And another was just a middle-of-the-road classical station. They had one hippie, like, freeform alternative underground radio at midnight. And... They just walked down the street and took over KSAN, and all the, everybody went over there, most of the people. And one guy stayed there, Stefan Ponick. He was the one KSFR guy and stayed a DJ there. And then they were at KSAN for the next 12 years, 68 to 80. What was the, the controversial Pepsi ad that played on KMPX? Well, they didn't want, you know, this was the, there's a, there's a movie called FM where yeah. the DJs, uh, go, you know, fight about an army ad they don't want to play an army ad well this was kind of the the, the genesis of that uh the staff didn't want to play a pepsi ad it was too commercial the ksan folks made up their own commercials they wrote they produced them they were goofy they were crazy and uh, hippie like you know stoned references and everything else and uh came in with big money you know pepsi was big money and it became this huge uh, cause celeb but they, they were sitting around one day, and one of the DJs, Vaco, Abe Keshian, I picture him in the book, but here he is also. That's Abe Keshian with Dusty, Dusty Street, one of the great first That's female yeah. hippie DJs. She went on to work with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. I believe and she's still on Sirius XM. I think she still does a show there, yeah. As does Meg Griffin, who worked with yep. in New York at, at K-Rock. Uh, Vaco said, you know, I drink Pepsi. And a couple of the others said, yeah, I drink Pepsi too. So why be hypocritical about it? And it was kind of part of the shift, becoming more corporate, the way a, a lot of things did in the 70s. The battle, uh, Nixon came in in 72, the pushback against the counterculture, uh, the revolution that was created in the 60s by the counterculture in so many fields. The pushback started in the 70s, that kind of stuff. And... You know, these, these commercial products, they knew they could sell to hippies. 
you know, so they put a lot of commercials on, on KSAN and eventually, as you know, the, the station went country western in 1980 and we were all blown out of there. 1980, just after Reagan was elected, weirdly enough. Mm. Yeah, and like you said, Tom brought the DJs with him from KMPX to KSAN. One guy almost didn't make it, Edward Bear. Uh, he had he had his battles with Tom, I think. Was that? Yeah, he was a big uh, city cat from New York. Done a lot of New York radio. Came out to San Francisco. Came in and said, I'm the best guy you ever saw. You know, you should hire me. And Donnie had said, yeah, give me a tape. He went in and made a tape at midnight. Uh, and just... He was the. He became Edward Bear. His name was Hirsch originally in New York, and he worked at the uh, in the village at the uh, Cafe Figaro, and did midnights. He was the the classic. His girlfriend was a flower child, and he was just created this character, the Bear. He said, "I come down from the mountains to explore these people in the city, and I have a good side and a bad side. You know, don't get on my bad side." But Edward Bear was a great. I, I loved his music. He played a great mix. And Donahue didn't bring him to KSAN, but all the other staff said, you got to bring, got to bring Ed Bear. And Was it a personality clash? Yeah, most definitely. He, he That's what Bear said. The New York yeah. versus way back San Francisco thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they also engineers, you know, they, 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 people didn't do their own engineering then. They're always white guys who are the engineers. They've been in radio forever. So you couldn't engineer your own show. In fact, you couldn't spin your own records. So Donahue hired women for that, got rid of these suits, and he hired what he called his chick engineers. Chick engineers, fairly, yeah. Fairly progressive for uh, 67. I thought of that reading the book. I thought about that, man. It was really cool. Really cool that he did them, that. Yeah, and some of them didn't get to go to KSAN because they, they weren't needed anymore. Like they got yeah. to you could do your own show. You could do your own engineering. So some of them didn't didn't get over there either, and Bear was eventually brought over. But I don't know if all the chicks were brought over. Dusty Street started as a chick engineer, and found her voice there as a DJ and became you now, like you said, she's on Sirius XM and she's Hall of Fame. Now let's go back to the Beatles' performance, the final American appearance, which was at Candlestick Park, August 29th, nineteen sixty-six. Rachel Donahue said the Beatles did not want to do the show. But the only reason they did was because of Tom. He put in a clause in the contract. Was it a $10,000 clause or something that if they didn't play, they'd have to pay him that? And, you know, it was at the very end of the Beatles because after that tour, 66 tour, my sisters actually saw, saw them at, at the Olympia Hockey Arena in Detroit uh, at that time. But on that tour, 65, 66. When they got on the plane after that concert, the Beatles, George Harrison was like, that's it. I don't want to tour. I'm done with this. And they all pretty much decided that. And they never played again live until that top of the Apple concert on the rooftop of Apple, which you see in that recent documentary, that great documentary about the Beatles, an eight-hour documentary. Yeah, interesting that Tom had, he played a role in getting them to perform at that San Francisco show. And also their coverage, KSAN's coverage of the Altamont concert is covered in your book. They covered it from the moment it began right through to the aftermath. And you include excerpts from the broadcast on that Sunday morning, December 8th, the day after. Some chilling accounts from people who were there that called in. One was talking about people getting kicked, people getting walked on, a girl being dragged across the stage by her hair. I mean, that is there any standout 
quote from that chapter for you? Well, when the Hell's Angel, uh, the head of the Hell's Angels called him, Sonny Barger, and you got the other side of it. We moved them people to save that bike, and then after that, they started trying to destroy our bikes, and we're not going to stand for it, and then that made it personal. Right, it really did. You know, that's not a nice thing Sonny. to do. Like we tried, like he's talking about that Mick Jagger had the people sit down. Well, you know what? You grab old Mick Jagger and ask him who told him to tell the people to sit down. I, that's what I... I told him to tell the people to sit down. And if anybody was there in the front rows can remember me walking over and telling them, you know what, if you tell these people to sit down and be cool, the people in the back can see a little bit and this show will get on and we can get it going. And he done it. You know, we've all heard the Hells Angels, they ruined it. Sure, they got hired to do security for $500 of beer by the Rolling Stones. So they were all completely sloshed. And they brought their bikes in and somebody touched their bikes and then it, it, that went off and somebody was killed. But you had Woodstock in August of 69. And that was just went off, as we know, as a cultural landmark of what it became. So San Francisco said, let's, gonna, let's do another one. And the Rolling Stones were going to play free in Golden Gate Park. No, nobody's going to have a free concert in Golden Gate Park with the Rolling Stones. They tried a couple other places. And this Altamont Speedway only became available at the last minute and it turned into a disaster, the opposite of Woodstock. And a couple of the KSN DJs had been to Woodstock, so they got on the air the next day and opened up the phone lines for hours and talked about what went wrong at Altamont. It had to do with bad acid that went through everybody, terrible, you know, the vibes. And the Rolling Stones, there's a lot of blame to go around. And I talked to David Smith, who started the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic at that time. There's a lot of kids on the streets. They had nowhere to go, and they'd go to this free clinic. And he said it, there was, it was known. There was bad acid there, and it just created horrible uh, Altamont. But they, some people say it was the end of the 60s. Yeah, that absolutely. That, that and Charles Manson. That and the Manson murders. Sharon Tate, that whole thing, that was it. There's a chapter devoted to Tom Donahue's interview with John Lennon, too, from 1974. John and Yoko visited Tom and Rachel's home for the interview. Rachel said, Yoko was the most hated wife in America, but they got along great. She added that she could hear John and Yoko doing their screen therapy from where they were staying. They were down the street, and they could hear it through their window. John gave a lengthy interview to Tom, which speaks to how respected he was. Would you say that was was that the high point of Tom Donahue's career in terms of interviews? Well, you look at how long they'd known each other. They really connected in 65 when Lennon was like, at 66 when they came. And, you know, Tom was the hippest guy he'd ever seen. Big Tom Donahue took him under his arm and helped him with that final concert. And they stayed friends all those years. And so there he came in 74 for that interview. And... There's another great uh, piece interview with uh, John Lennon in the book with Scoop Nisker, the uh, last news show guy. If you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. Scoop, who got that name when he was covering the Chicago uh, 8 trial in 68 in Chicago, he called Johnny Yoko in their hotel room uh, when they were doing their bed in their, for hair, for love. And they were in a hotel room bed in uh, Montreal. And Scoop called him, and that was on the air. It's a really funny interview. But Lennon and, 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 and Tom went a long way back and really dug each other, and you can tell on the air. In fact, there's a link. I have QR codes in the book 
that link you to certain audio. And one of those is the Lennon Donahue 1974 interview. Lennon had just finished his album, Walls and Bridges. So he came on to play it. Let's just start through the new album with uh, right, side one, cut one. That's where they always put the, the, the song they like the most. Huh? Oh, do you? Well, what, what, what do you do? How do you figure out? Uh, it depends. You know, I try and start it off with, except for when I did Imagine, I put sort of, I suppose that was the album, really. Usually try and put something that brings you in, but not too much, but just sort of medium. And that's what this is. It's called Going Down on Love. And then Bob McClay was on the air when news of Tom's death came, April 28th, 1975. And he was only 46 years old when he died suddenly of a heart attack. And I always get the image whenever I, there's pictures of Tom Donahue in the book. He, I always think of Orson Welles, like that, you know, in later years, like the big, again, big voice, just a big presence when he walked in the room. He snorted coke. He did acid. He, he had huge appetites. He used to hold court at Enrico's in North Beach, a famous night spot. And everybody would sit around him there, you know, Tom Smothers and, and the David Steinberg and guys like that. He, he was the man. Hippest hippie, the hippiest hipster. In fact, you talked about the end of the 60s being in 69. People talk about the, when was the end of Kaysan. And yep. when Donahue died, a lot of people said that was it. Well, that was one of my questions. What effect did his death have on KSAN and radio in general from that point on, in your opinion? Because he was he was planning on getting KMPX back and all the jocks were going to go with him. He was very much still in the radio game. I mean, it was a huge blow, and he didn't like where the station was going. And I mean, he could still get away with whatever he wanted, but he was thinking of getting out at that time. And there's a chapter about how he died, and it's a Rashomon. You know, everybody thinks they knew, and it's something else. He was playing backgammon. He was snorting with some high rollers. Or, you know, who knows exactly? But there are all the opinions are there. Was that the end of K-San? I'm kind of thinking it was at that era because the music got a little eh, more middle of the road in the 70s. But then by the end of the 70s, punk, punk music came along, New Wave, Elvis Costello, this whole British thing, The Clash, Sex Pistols, and K-San went for it, you know? So, you know, personally, of course, I loved it when I was there, but some people say it, was, uh, it ended when KMPX went off the air in 68. Some people say, that's it. It got too commercial. When I worked at the end of the 80s in New York, WXRK, K-Rock, it was like the dark side of where K-San ended up. You know, right. straightforward, FM, playlist, totally restricted. You know, once we played, uh, Lou Reed had a new album out at that time, New York. It's a great comeback album. Not comeback, but it's a New York album. And we had him on as a guest, and we said, what should we play? And he said, play Busload of Faith. We played it. It wasn't on the playlist, so we were suspended. It, it was so restricted by that point, and it's kind of that's where it came, you know, from 79, 80 to 89, 90, you know, that, that's been radio today, you know. Everybody's got a radio Everybody's got a radio show now, though, don't they? Well, that's the thing. He would love podcasting, I think. I mean, he would appreciate that because it really is going back to what he created in the beginning, which was free form. Say what you want, do what you want. The thing that was different was it was part of a movement, part of the countercultural right. uh, revolution, which is the anti-war movement, you know, gay movement, black movement, Chicano movement, feminist movement. And KSAN gave voice to all those type of, uh, they had shows on all those topics. We 
One year is a long time. Fifteen years is a very long time. What are you going to be doing for the next 15 years? I know of at least three GIs who will be spending that time in prison for the crime of mutiny. What does mutiny mean to you? However wide-ranging the definitions of mutiny are, I'm sure a few of you would consider singing a mutinous act. Certainly not one deserving a punishment of 15 years at hard labor. This Saturday, March 15th at 1.30 p.m., there will be a peaceful public assembly at the Marina Green with music provided by a variety of concerned performers at the foot of Lyon, Saturday, 1.30. Arlo Guthrie's going to be there. Are you? Then the book gets into the end of that great era of radio at KSAN, and you've alluded to it throughout the interview. Which It was the late 70s. What led to the demise, and was there a time, was there a moment when you were there that you thought, yeah, this is it, it's, it's going down? Or was it overnight? Because a lot of times that happens in radio, it's overnight. Hey, we're country. I had that when I was working in Hartford. It was just overnight. Hey, we're going to be different change of format. So did you sense something was coming? You always knew uh, something was wrong because of Metro Media, which had become this big radio conglomerate in New York, and they had L.A. and Philly, WMMR, and they had Cleveland. Uh, and WNEW in New York, and and the and the LA station was uh, KMET or Metro Media, yeah. And they came up from there. K Sam was playing all that punk, was the first one to play uh, new wave punk, and the LA people were like, "No, we play commercial." There's some really well produced albums out there. Fleetwood Mac was big then. Uh, you play these albums, Tom Petty, the Eagles, more likely. And this stuff was really well produced, and K-San had a problem. There was a real conflict there between the, the DJs that loved to play the, the, the uh, new wave, and then the DJs were like still into the psychedelia, you know, all that music. And so you had these two coming together, and the Metro Media looked at the ratings, and there was a new station in town, KMEL, Camel. They were playing the straight ahead rock and roll, and they and the punks. There's not a big enough audience for that, right? right? The, the shock of the new. People were not into that. It was a very intense period. It's kind of like psychedelic rock and reached as far as I could, right, into this orchestral, uh, with a classical, classic rock, huge, booming, you know, triple or quadruple albums. And then punk brought it back down to like three chords and the truth. You know, it was like, right. bum, back to the basics. So it had gone through all this thing. Couldn't go any farther. There's a book called Twilight of the Gods about where that uh, music went, heavy metal and all that stuff. Amazing that's still around now. But yeah, it was that similar with Nirvana in the early 90s. Very similar. That movement, yeah. The hair metal was getting way, 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 way out of control. And it just pulled it all back, yeah. But you also must have had those moments where you see unfamiliar faces walking around the building. Like, who's this guy? They sent these people up from LA. Yeah, yeah. You're like, who is this dude? And why is he looking in the studio with this that look on his face like you could tell he doesn't approve of what's going on here? Kind of a lockdown. It started when they locked they locked the record library and brought in their own what was to be played in bins. They put little bins yep. in the studio with That's the it. color coding. Yes. And when you couldn't get into the lot the lo- record library anymore, 
I, there's a DJ Norm Weiner who talks about him seeing at the end right there. He was on the air while he saw the guys hammering and, and putting in this lock. Well, when I was on with Capen near the end, Steve Capen was actually the last DJ on the air in November of 80. He would send me over to get special records. And he used to have me climb over the plexiglass into the library to get the records he wanted to play. He didn't give a shit. So he was like, you know, he's going over the wall. <laughs> That's awesome. Clash or whatever he wanted to play, you know, Firesign Theater, Lenny Bruce albums, which I liberated after I got fired. They kept a lot of the albums in the basement and I liberated them. Um, well, I was going to ask you, did you get to leave on your own or did you get fired? And you just answered that. How, what was that moment like? How did they well, these, give you the news? These guys, you know, they came in from L.A. and they made a clean sweep. Dave Moorhead was his name. We called him El Nuclear Warhead because it's an anti-nukes movement at that time in the late 70s. And uh, my <laughs> the news director, Joanne Rosenzweig, was, uh, she was on her honeymoon. <laughs> and called in to find out that she'd been fired. And I was part of her news uh, staff, so I was fired with her. And they fired her while she was on her honeymoon with her husband, Fred Green, who was another great KSAN guy. They're still married and uh, worked at a bunch of other stations as a news director. And she's got a book out, uh, talks about her radio history, and uh, he's got a golf podcast, and she's doing a podcast. So they're all both still in the broadcasting, but I, one of our fellow newsmen, GNUS, is what they called the news department. Chris Stanley was a mentor of mine. He went up to this Moorhead guy and tried to punch him in the face. You know? Yeah. Uh, he put up on acid for a couple of days before they did that. Uh, another guy, Tom O'Hare, was another one. They took acid together and came in one time with Joanna Ro Joanne Roosevelt was about to go on the air with a newscast. Tom O'Hare just set it on fire and it all just crumpled in her hands. She had to go, to go and talk it through, which the, deep, which the newscasters did a lot there anyway. They more talk the news and uh, that's another important part of the station was this radical news department that was in the streets in berkeley covering the riots when dan white shot mayor moscone and harvey milk in 78 and just just incredible uh, these were my mentors scoop Nisgerd, larry bensky larry uh, dave mcqueen Larry Lee, who wrote a book about Jack Kerouac, so it was kind of the connection of the beats to the hippies. In fact, the first day I was hired was Larry Lee was having a book party for his oral biography of, of K-San. I'll wow. never forget going to it. I was like, you know how kids today say, I found my people. And right. these were like, oh my God, these are my people. These are the ones, that, they, they're going to get me. And yeah. so we did a lot of wild creative stuff. And, and walking home that night after the book party, I remember walking up Market Street and there were a lot of bums and homeless people at that time. 78, it was ever thus. And I looked at all these people and I thought, yeah, I'm going to change the world at KSAM, but I'm not going to be able to help these people. And I kind of realized the yin and yang of it, you know? The yeah. greatest of dreams, be creative, put it all out there, be political, countercultural, but boy, how are you going to get justice? It's going to take a long time, man. The Jive 95, an oral history of America's greatest underground rock radio station. KSAN San Francisco. So it's out August 15th through Backbeat Books. And let's talk about the website. Let's get that out there, jive95.com. What can people jive95 find? Jive95.com. You can find out a lot of information, stuff that, I, that couldn't make the book. I got cut from all these people I interviewed. Great stories. They, I'm going to put those on the website. And as you said, there's all this audio on the website. Some of it's in the book. But you can pretty much find out everything KSAN there. 
at thejive95.com. Also, my website, hankrosenthal.com, tells you about how we're promoting the book, places in the Bay Area, and eventually, I hope, across the country to come see uh, readings and events. Yeah, so it's all on your website and jive95.com. And, and thanks for letting me play these clips throughout. People have been hearing these clips throughout this interview. So much to pick from. I just picked a few here and there. There's a lot more on the website, jive95.com. And where can people find you outside of your website? Any social media sites that you want to plug? Uh, I've done a lot of uh, stories on NPR. So you could go to npr.org and, and put my name in. On my website, there's a lot of audio from radio yes. stories I've done, journalism stories. I've, I've been a freelance writer and a, and a ghostwriter for years and done a lot of other books like that. And, and just want to mention that Beat Museum book launching. If you're in San Francisco, come on down to the Beat Museum August 19th, and we're going to have ice cream, cake, toke wine, which the Beats drank, and uh, I try to put a joint under every seat kind of thing. <laughs> I was thinking of gummies, but it's the wrong era. You know? it, it's for medical but, reasons, though. Yeah, Just... brownies, San Francisco, <laughs> way beyond, always. They were doing a marijuana ads in 1967. They were calling for the legalization, and Wavy Gravy would get on. and uh, Wavy Frank Gravy! Zappa, Frank yeah. Zappa would get on yeah. and say, uh, one of the great PSAs, don't do speed. This is Frank Zappa, the mother's invention. Don't do speed. Because it'll turn you into your parents. Uh, <laughs> by the way, he could have been a great disc jockey. He did, some of the clips are on that website of him doing reads for the station. And he had such a unique voice, a speaking voice, that he you know, could have. You know, he came out with Tom and you really schooled him. Tom, they were playing oldies together because they knew <laughs> the, the Jet Zappa's love of those old 45s. And he was just telling Tom, like, uh-uh, Tom, that's not what it was. Well, hello, this is Frank Zappa. And you're listening to the hippest of all radio stations simply because of its location, KSAM-FM. Is that right? KSAN-FM in the city that God created, San Francisco, California. How cool you are. Uh, I'm so glad that we were able to do this, Hank. This is a, we, we actually have been chatting leading up to this interview for quite a while because this the, this book was announced a while back and i was so excited i actually saw it before you reached out to me i said hank i already know about this book because as a radio guy and we got a picture of you in the book there that's you right that's scoop nisker oh okay uh, oh that's one of the great wesley scoop nisker he just died like three days ago oh he, he was a boo jew he started the boo jew uh, movement up there well he, he led weekends in it which was uh kind of uh, his his mantra it was om shalom so you had the buddhism and the jewish yeah. there and, uh, the swami from miami uh, was one of his creation played by a friend of his daryl henriquez who uh, actually i'm working with him on his memoir now he's a very funny k-san character scoop um is Rest the one that's he scoop man just three days ago go out and make some of your own yeah he was living in an elder ashram in oakland aggressive senior home but that's anyway. why a book like this is, is more important than ever, because a lot of the people involved were losing them. And you know, like we mentioned, Howard Hessman has since passed. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an era. It's an era that I will never get back again. You know, it's just things have changed too much with technology now where the, the importance of radio. A lot of people that are younger just don't understand radio was a was part of your everyday life. 
it's part of that, and it's also part of that counterculture that I don't think is taught in high schools that I, I think is important because it was about community and change and uh, turning on kids to new ideas. And, of course, the great music. Always. Yeah. Hank, thanks so much, man. This was awesome. Eric, it was really fun, and I want to talk to you more about Triple C and uh, Southern Con and all that stuff when we get off the air here. That's it. It's in the books.